0: Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Titan Up The Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. Lisa and I are both getting over a little bit of the seasonal crud, so for the last week we've been staying in as much as we could. And we ended up watching a bunch of old Agatha Christie adaptations, which was a lot of fun. A phrase that came up in a couple of those that I've always been pretty fond of was footloose and fancy free. I was thinking, that's a fun old timey phrase. I wonder when the last time was that I was feeling footloose and fancy free. And I think it was probably the last time I went ice skating. Because my feet hurt and I didn't like anything. And when you think about it, that's what that phrase should probably mean. I felt like my feet had been put on wrong and were probably loose, and I was definitely free of fancy. I did not fancy anything. Anyway, the good news is I'm back on the mend, back to feeling foot secure and fancy full. And one thing that I fancy is talking about comic books. So, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's Synopsis Rhyme is submitted by Osvaldo Ayola. A deciduous tree common to the Himalayas is one of Wong's faves to sit under for his prayers. One name for this tree is the Parateopsis. But prayers are private, so don't ask for a synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Osvaldo. Defenders, number 70. April, 1979. Catch a falling lunatic. Written by Ed Hannigan. Drawn by Herb Trimpe, inked by Mike Esposito, lettered by Rick Parker, colored by Bob Sharon, and edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup. The Incredible Hulk, Valkyrie, Nighthawk, Hellcat, and Doctor Strange. Previously in The Defenders... In an effort to further familiarize herself with Midgard, asterisk Earth, Valkyrie enrolled in classes at Empire State University. Once on campus, the Aesir undergrad befriended a pair of film students, respectively named Dollar Bill and Ledge. She also ran afoul of a hyperviolent vigilante named Lunatic with a K who had been hospitalizing or murdering petty criminals around the ESU area. Val also met a creepy drama professor named Harrison Turk who had a habit of making cryptic statements implying that he harbored a dark secret and was almost certainly Lunatic with a K. A sorcerously Scandinavian swordslinger battled Lunatic with a K on several occasions, but each time her overly aggressive adversary managed to escape. During one such encounter, Lunatic with a K attacked Val's new pal, Ledge, hospitalizing the hapless cinephile. Then the whole gang went to Asgard for several issues to deal with some nonsense involving a power-hungry Norse god of biathlons who dressed like a mechanical street shark. It was a whole thing. Nighthawk, Hellcat, and the Hulk died. Oh no! But then they got better. Hooray! While our titular team was temporarily terminated, a pair of agents at the Justice Department received reports of possible malfeasance on the part of Kyle Richmond, a.k.a. Nighthawk, and began investigating some of his company's financial records. Our heroes returned, both from Asgard and the dead, but had little time to recuperate from their recent resurrection. Their old pal Dr. Strange stopped by to enlist his erstwhile ally's aid on an important adventure. At Steve's request, the defenders journeyed to New England to battle a tennis instructor who had been transformed into a doomsday-level threat because Dr. Strange was a litterbug and left some evil magic robot parts lying around on the beach. During the course of defeating their racket sport relishing rival, Steve was forced to transform the Hulk back into his Bruce Banner alter ego to keep him from inadvertently triggering a nuclear Armageddon. Gadzooks! Will our heroes finally figure out Lunatic with a K's secret identity? Has Steve officially rejoined the unofficial roster of the Defenders? And why is the Justice Department investigating Richmond Enterprises? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, yes, but in a way that raises more questions than it answers. Seems like. And, you mean apart from the fact that the owner has a history of thrill-seeking burglary, has been declared dead twice in the past few years, and the company once covertly financed a snake-themed arsonist hate group? I can't imagine. The defenders return to New York, a little pooped out from the four-hour journey from New England. Dr. Strange tells the rest of the gang that he has something he needs to talk to the still de-Hulkified Bruce Banner about, so the two of them head into the Sanctum Sanctimonious, while the rest of the defenders head back to their Long Island headquarters. As the three heroes approach the former riding academy they call home, Kyle notices a couple of men in suits approaching the compound in a limousine. Curious, the affluent avian aficionado flies down to investigate the two strangers. And, because this is Kyle, by investigate, I of course mean ineffectually threaten and bully. Damn it, Kyle. Nighthawk swoops down and knocks the men to the ground. After regaining his footing, one of them responds by shaking his fist and yelling, Knock it off, Richmond! Get back here and talk to us! Interesting. Unsettled, Kyle picks up one of the men by the scruff of his neck before returning to the skies. Hovering high above the ground, suspending the stranger with one hand, the bird-themed billionaire Duel is like, Who are you, and how do you know my closely guarded and definitely secret identity? Were you around one of the many times I yelled it out in public for no apparent reason? Or do you subscribe to my newsletter? Answer me or I'll drop you! The victim of Nighthawk's interrogation readily complies, introducing himself as Ron Rice, an employee of the Justice Department, and saying that the U.S. government is one of the many groups that is privy to Kyle's, (laughs) secret identity. Reluctantly, Kyle returns Agent Rice to the ground, but seems far from contrite about the whole threatening to kill him thing. Rice continues that the Justice Department has been looking into Richmond Enterprises and investigating Kyle specifically on numerous counts of fraud, tax evasion, and stock manipulation. Ron had wanted to press charges immediately, but his partner Hal had convinced him to hear Kyle's side of the story. Kyle replies angrily, "'That's ridiculous! I haven't done anything illegal! I mean, except for all those burglaries, and the couple of times me and my buddies the Squadron Sinister tried to destroy the planet, and the time my company was diverting funds to the Sons of Serpent so that they could burn down minority housing in the inner city and then we could buy up the land and sell it at a profit!' But that was, well, I'm not entirely sure how comic book time works, but probably at least a couple months ago. Since then, I haven't done anything illegal at all. Unless you're going to tell me there's some kind of a law against assault and battery, reckless endangerment, or wanton destruction of public property. Now get out of here before I beat you government employees up for trying to do your jobs! Hal and Ron leave, but for some reason, I don't think Kyle made a great impression on them. Still grumbling, Kyle heads inside. After shaking their heads ruefully at what an asshole their non-teammate is, Val and Patsy join him. A fair amount of mail is built up during their respective Asgardian and New England trips. Patsy deftly sorts through the stack of missives, diplomatically hiding anything she feels might provoke her irascible co-worker's ire. In the end, she is left with one piece of mail. Valkyrie's class schedule for the upcoming semester at ESU has arrived. Enclosed along with the usual paperwork is an invitation to a midnight mixer school dance that is taking place in two days. Val and Patsy decide to attend. Wait, is a college dance a thing? Like a like a high school dance, only older? Because it sounds like an old-timey thing that doesn't exist anymore. I wonder if they'll be piling into a phone booth afterwards, or wearing raccoon fur coats and straw boater hats. Back in Greenwich Village at the Sanctum Sanctimonious... Steve is concluding a conversation with Bruce Banner. The scene opens with him saying, Now that I've just finished explaining the complicated situation that I need your assistance with, will you agree to help? Bruce is like, Well, you explained it so thoroughly, leaving no questions unanswered. After a totally satisfying exposition like that, how could I refuse? Steve is like, Good. Do you think your alter ego, the Hulk, will agree to help as well? Bruce responds, Gosh, I don't know. Why don't you transform me into him and ask him? I know normally I dread becoming the Hulk, and will do anything in my power to forestall it, on account of it fills me with terror and a sort of existential angst that threatens my very concept of self, coupled with an understandable reluctance to experience the body horror inherent in a transformation of that nature, but what the heck? Steve says some mystic nonsense, and Bruce turns into the Hulk. Hearing the noise from the transformation, Clea bursts into the room and is like, What's going on in here? Steve, are you making more of those tiny flame ghosts? Be careful with those things. Last time I left town for the weekend, you almost burned down the sanctum. Steve is like, what? Um, no, that doesn't sound like me. You're probably thinking about Wong. He sure loves those flame ghosts. Those nasty little flame ghosts. Anyway, gotta go. Come on, the Hulk. Adventure awaits. And with that, Steve and the Hulk teleport away. As they go, Strange offers to explain the situation to the Jade Giant, but the Hulk tells him not to bother. He'll agree to assist the magician, but only if Steve shuts up. A couple of nights later, Patsy and Valkyrie head to the ESU Auditorium to attend the Midnight Mixer. Kyle drops them off and tells them he wishes he could join them, but he has a dinner meeting with his accountant to discuss his ongoing legal trouble. Upon entering the dance, the two ladies are greeted by Dollar Bill and Professor Turk, who are apparently now roommates. Huh. The four exchange pleasantries, but are interrupted by the dramatic arrival of Ledge, who is now out of the hospital, though still on crutches. The convalescent co-ed angrily accuses Professor Turk of being lunatic with a K, and suggests that for their own safety, everyone should stay away from the enigmatic academic. The professor is like, What? No way! And on an entirely unrelated note, I have to go away right now. That clears that up. Dollar Bill thinks Ledge is just upset that he got an incomplete in Turk's class because he missed so many lectures due to his hospital stay, but Valkyrie isn't so sure. She and Patsy head outside to investigate, but find that despite having left only seconds ago, Professor Turk is nowhere to be seen. Hmm. Val mentions that her last few run-ins with Lunatic with a K occurred during the full moon, and wouldn't you know it, there's a full moon again tonight. Sure enough, no sooner has our perceptive protagonist finished making this observation than she spots a furtive figure clad in lunatic with a K's signature lime green tracksuit dashing across the quad. Instructing Patsy to call Kyle for backup, the vivacious Viking shield maiden gives chase. Hellcat manages to reach Kyle on his car phone and finds the playboy plutocrat is all too eager for the opportunity to ditch his accountant. He pulls a U-turn and starts heading back towards the university. Meanwhile. Across campus, Lunatic with a K is about to assault a group of students when Val catches up with him. She intercepts her frenetic foe before he can do any damage to her classmates, and the two square off against one another. Lunatic with a K keeps up a constant barrage of pop culture non-sequiturs as they chase each other around the campus and beat each other up. Eventually, Val throws her magic sword at the Manic Menace. The pommel hits him in the tummy, which for some reason, knocks him out. Hooray! Back at the auditorium, Hellcat is waiting for Nighthawk to arrive when she sees Lunatic with a K sneaking off into some bushes. Huh? The freebooting feline follows her crazed quarry and kicks the costumed creep in the back. Lunatic with a K keeps up a constant barrage of pop culture non sequiturs as the two chase each other around campus and beat each other up. Eventually, Patsy manages to double karate chop the hyperkinetic heckler in the back of the head and knocks him unconscious. Hooray! A few minutes later, Nighthawk arrives back at the auditorium. He soon spots a familiar figure wearing pancake makeup and a lime green tracksuit skulking around the dorms. Okay. He gives chase, but Lunatic with a K spots Kyle's reflection in the window and ambushes the not-so-stealthy superhero. Lunatic with a K keeps up a constant barrage of pop culture non-sequiturs as the two chase each other around campus and beat each other up. Eventually, Kyle takes advantage of the fact that it is nighttime, and therefore he has the strength of two strong men, and throws his contemptible counterpart off a rooftop, knocking him unconscious. Hooray! Valkyrie, Hellcat, and Nighthawk all head to the center of the quad, and are amazed to see that each of them is dragging a vanquished vigilante behind them. As the trio of triumphant heroes begin comparing notes, hoping to make sense out of what has just transpired, a crowd of curious students begins to form around them. The defenders have no idea what to make with this impromptu game of three lunatic with a K Monty they appear to have stumbled into, when a familiar voice rings through the crowd and says, I believe I can explain what's happening, for I am lunatic with a K. It's Professor Turk. It is? Sure. Why not? I mean, this whole situation is nonsense. But a few weeks ago, the Hulk punched a mountain so good that a Norse goddess banished a street shark to hell. So I guess we're grading on a curve here. To be continued. And as eagle brained listeners will remember, my good for many things brother Cory accidentally pulled the tag off of a Kryptonian mattress and was banished to the Phantom Zone. Now, fortunately, There is one of those little space windows that opened up and a microphone near it, so we're still able to record remotely. So, joining us from the Phantom Zone is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it
1: going? Hey, pretty good. I guess that'll learn me to pull the tags off mattresses and whatnot. But, uh, it's so irresistible sometimes. Well, when they tell you that you can't, that's the part that gets to you. Yeah, infuriating. But at least it's nice here. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Mm-hmm. How's things in your neck of the dimension? I'm working through a cold, and it
0: feels kind of like somebody scooped my brain out and filled it with porridge. Which is weird, because I don't remember pissing off any Victorian-era orphans or talking bears, and I don't know who else even has access to porridge these
1: days. But there you have it. Did you put your brain in a bowl filled with nutrients? I tried. <laughs> if we've learned anything from the Defenders, it's that <laughs> you're going to have that happen, that's probably what you should do with your brain.
0: Corey, if you've paid any attention to my diet over the past 30 years or so, you'll know that I have no idea what a nutrient is. <laughs> <laughs> touché, touché. Well, uh, you want to talk about a comic book? Yeah, let's do that.
1: Corey, what do you think about this comic book? I enjoyed Hellcat's banter, and I liked the fighting action, but I was pretty much left with the feeling that it was kind of a a filler, or a little bit of a nothing issue. I agree it wasn't necessarily the
0: most satisfying read, but I think it was kind of necessary to have something kind of resetting all of the storylines that it's getting back to because it's been a while, like with the Justice Department coming after Kyle, and I had forgotten a lot of the details of the Lunatic story. So I feel like it was kind of interesting to get back to that stuff. I agree it was a little bit clunky in a lot of ways and wasn't necessarily the most dramatically satisfying read, but I thought it was okay.
1: Yeah, I agree there was some necessity to it. I don't think it needed 31 pages. Yeah. To be
0: fair, a fair amount of that was ads. I mean, it's not like this is the new Teen Titans where it's, you know, no ads, more story or mm-hmm. whatever the Chiron said on that. As I'm trying out using the word Chiron. Did I use it right?
1: Wait, isn't that the guy that drives the boat across the river sticks? That's Charon. Oh. I, d- I don't know what a Chiron is in this context. Or at all. <laughs> I know it's the
0: thing that comes across the bottom of a TV screen that, like, gives you details on news channels. Oh, really? Yeah, but I don't know if it's also the thing that goes on the top of a comic book that tells you that it doesn't have any ads.
1: Oh. I guess that's, like, an ad for no ads.
0: Oh. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, let's get into more of the meat of this comic, what meat there is. As I said, it kind of breaks down into three main storylines. You've got the Nighthawk dealing with the Justice Department bit. You've got the uh, Steve and Hulk preparing to go on a journey bit. And you've got the fight with Lunatic bit. So, let's start with the Steve and Hulk preparing for some kind of a mystical something or other. How'd that grab
1: you? It was pretty short high praise indeed i thought that the way that steve said goodbye to clea was kind of funny and i i know it's magical that he does the ronnie james Dio devil horns thing but there is a, a panel in which like she comes in you know he zaps uh bruce banner into the hulk inside the sanctum sanctimonious and that makes a noise and so clea runs in and is like hey what's going on and At that point, Doctor Strange basically says, and I paraphrase loosely, I just got some things I gotta do, baby, (laughs) and leaves. (laughs) Pretty much. But before he does that, he gives like the rock on symbol, which I mean, he's doing magic or something, but it just seems like a really weird panel that struck me as as funny.
0: There was a lot about that little conversation between him and the Hulk and between him and Clea that just seemed a little bit off. It seemed like he was worried cleo was pissed off at him and was just like okay well gotta go bye Mm -hmm. it's not dangerous (laughs) only learning don't worry bye also in the final panel it looks kind of i think she's supposed to have her arms crossed but it looks like clea is maybe exposing herself to a disappearing
1: steve and the hulk oh i no i just assumed her her arms were crossed which does lend credence to your theory that maybe she is unhappy with Stephen and that's why he made such a hasty retreat.
0: It just seems odd to bother including her in the story. She's really just in the two panels. She comes into the room and says, Stephen, what transpires here? And then stands there as he teleports away. And right before he teleports away, he looks kind of scared in that panel you mentioned where he's doing the devil horns. Oh, do you think he's doing those at her? (laughs) Like (laughs) warding off the evil eye? Ah, It really just seemed like he just doesn't want to have a conversation, which I think would be in keeping with his character. Yeah, he does look nervous. He just seems kind of off his game in general. His whole interaction with Bruce Banner, the dialogue didn't really make quite sense. It seemed like maybe Bruce Banner was experimenting with sarcasm, but wasn't really good at it yet. I mean, you probably know green skin better than I do. I am willing to give you the chance to ask him. And strange response. That is enough. <laughs> I know what a sacrifice it is, and I appreciate your courage. And Bruce Banner responds by saying,
1: "Yeah, yeah." That, that <laughs> cracked me up too because it does. It has a little exclamation point and everything. I'm like, why is he so pumped that Steve just told him it was enough?
0: It just seemed off, and that was why I was wondering. I was like, wait, is he trying out sarcasm and doesn't really get how it works yet? Because if he was being real snotty, then that kind of makes sense why Steve would just be like, that is enough. But it just doesn't really read that way. And I'm wondering if some of the words are emphasized differently because there is a new letterer, and if maybe like the punctuation and emphasis on words that are bolded
1: is just made in a random way. But it it reads really awkward. Even his thought bubbles have emphasis where... There's a thought bubble in which he's where he's saying that he can turn Bruce into the Hulk, but he can't go the other way.
0: Yeah. And he's like, but I regret that I cannot reverse the process permanently. It's like, wait, is he saying he wishes he could kill the Hulk? Or he's just
1: wishing he was Hulky all
0: the time. Or yeah, I don't know. It's a very odd exchange. And another thing that is odd about the fact that that exchange is happening then at all is the fact that. Steve brings up the fact that he thinks that whatever he and the Hulk are going to do is probably pretty soon going to have an effect on the rest of the Defenders. They just flew back from Maine together over the course of four hours, and he didn't bring any of it up on the flight.
1: Yeah, it's for for Hulk's ears only for some reason. <laughs> or... I I brought this up in the intro of the
0: last issue because he did the same thing with Nighthawk where he's like, all right, well, we're going to Maine and I've got a thing that I need to tell you, so let's fly there together, but we won't talk to each other at all during the flight. And then when we get where we're going, you'll just be like, all right, now what is it you needed to show me? Like, is it a drama thing or does he just really hate talking while flying? Does he just like plug in his earbuds of Agamotto and just listen to mystical podcasts the whole time. Is Steve just a nervous flyer?
1: No, I think he's insecure that if he gives it away, people won't travel with him. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I have something totally awesome to show you, but you can't see it till we got there. (laughs) That kind of thing.
0: I feel like that might work a couple of times, but after you've pulled that crap... I feel like even by the second or third time you do that, people are just going to be like, why don't you tell me what it is, and then we'll decide if we're going. Well, that's, that's
1: why he's cycling through the, the, the
0: roster. <laughs> oh, right. Did it with Nighthawk, then the Hulk. Got it. Also, he is being a pretty poor host in that we've seen before that his uh, sanctum sanctimonious is pretty plushly appointed. He has a lot of visitors at various times. You'd think he could hook
1: Bruce up with a shirt. Yeah, or some nachos or something. I mean, those guys have been working so hard and traveling so far, they're probably tired and hungry. We know the other defenders are in desperate need of a a bath. Right. And, I mean,
0: we saw that Bruce got the shit beat out of him by a tennis enthusiast in the last issue and then is still just wearing his torn purple jorts. Now... I get that if you're worried about him turning into the Hulk at a random time, you might not want to give him a shirt to put on because he's just going to rip out of it. But Steve has demonstrated he is in charge of the Hulk's transformations at this point. Give the dude a fucking sweater.
1: Yeah, I mean, Bruce looks pretty um, scrawny compared to Hulk's brawn. he's probably cold. Yeah, I mean, he's very nice about the whole thing, too. Yeah, lucky for Steve. I'm curious to find out what this possibly universe-impacting thing is they're going to learn about.
0: Yeah, I'm a little curious about that, too. I'm also kind of wondering if now Steve is just back being part of the team. It kind of seems like that's
1: the case. Yeah, he was busy for a while doing whatever. But um, hopefully he's back. I enjoy his um, nonsense. (laughs) Yeah, I
0: think nonsense is a fair uh, thing to call what Steve does. Yeah, I like it, too. I'm not crazy about the guy always, but I always like having him there. As I mentioned, we also see that Nighthawk still has to deal with the Justice Department and their investigation of him. And man, does he fuck that up in a bunch of ways.
1: Wait, so you mean when the Justice Department is investigating you, you shouldn't swoop down on them, call them chunkheads, and then pick one of them up and fly around with them? (laughs) (laughs) Seems like it went okay, all things considered. The guy was pretty chill about it. The guy who
0: he picked up and flew into the air and threatened seemed pretty chill about it, which is odd because he was the guy who already disliked Kyle. But the other guy who was trying to give him the benefit of the doubt was like, look, we came out here to try to hear your side of things. So what's your side of things? And he's like, my side of things is get the fuck out of here. Yeah, he's such a jerk. And they're like, "Okay, well, back in our Justice Department limousine.
1: Why did they have a limousine? And why did Kyle assume that the limousine belonged to mobsters? There's all kinds of strange things happening.
0: Limousine use in the Marvel Universe just must be pretty different. Or maybe like the government is more upfront about their overspending back then.
1: Yeah, I guess it was
0: the 70s. I don't know. It did seem weird that he was just like, oh, there's a limo. It's probably either mobsters or reporters. I don't like either one of those groups of people. I think I'll threaten to kill them.
1: Yeah, bad job just making all these assumptions. And the guy that's the Fed, who was the one that was trying to convince his partner who got flown around by Nighthawk to give Kyle a chance. Yeah, I think that was Hal. Hal, looks in profile very much like Hank Hill from King of the Hill.
0: <laughs> I can totally see that.
1: So it's where he's pointing at Kyle, I just keep like hearing him. like
0: Trying to sell him propane and propane accessories? Yeah. We also, when he thinks that it is still mobsters or reporters, there's a weird thought bubble where Kyle's like, oh, I should get rid of my current security system and replace it with some traps and tricks like the Avengers. Now... By his current security system, does he
1: just mean that sign that he painted and nailed above the porch? Gosh, I don't know. I, I imagine he's got some stuff left over from that training montage a few issues back where there was all the death machines and things.
0: Oh, that was designed to try to kill him, not anybody else. That wasn't a security device. Oh, that's just
1: hanging out in his backyard part of his training, huh? Yeah, that's his pommel horse. Right, okay. Yeah, maybe you should turn that thing into some traps.
0: Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like it would take that much work. I do like the idea, though, that right now what he considers a security system is a hand-painted sign that he nailed up that says, Keep out! Yeah, strong, strong words. (laughs) (laughs) I also did notice that Ron Rice, who is the Justice Department agent who Kyle picks up and threatens, appears to have six fingers on one hand. Whoa, that's a lot of fingers. It really is. It's on the bottom of page three. He's counting off all of the infractions that he believes Kyle is guilty of. That's a jacked up hand. (laughs) I can see why he needs so many fingers because Kyle did fuck up pretty bad. Maybe he's got, like, an extra prosthetic finger that he brings out when he's just like, all right, this is just for dramatic purposes, but when I count stuff off, it really helps me if I can point at a finger for each one of them. And this guy fucked up real bad. This is a six-finger hand type guy. Ooh, six-finger Kyle. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's also possible that uh, he killed Kyle's dad in a sword duel and that Kyle has been tracking him his entire life. Uh (laughs) Ah, Although, if Kyle does try to give him the, hello, my name is Kyle Richmond, apparently Ron would just be like, yeah, I know your name. Everybody in the government knows your name. You're really bad at secret identities.
1: Yeah, that was, um, vindicating is not the right word, but it was refreshing to know that the rest of the Marvel Universe has as low an opinion of Kyle's disguise abilities as I do.
0: Yeah, I wonder to what extent that is having Ed Hannigan, a guy who has read all of the issues up to this point, take over as writer. I mean, as we've been reading them, we've noticed all of these tropes that have popped up, and it is kind of validating, I think, to see that the new writer taking over is also just like, yeah, I also noticed this keeps seeming to be the case. And I think we've seen that with, in general his take on Nighthawk and David Craft's to an extent, too, where it's just like, oh, yeah, as I've been reading this guy. I've noticed he's a real asshole. And I don't think that necessarily previous writers had noticed the extent to which they were making him an asshole. But having somebody with a reader's perspective take over the writing, I think it kind of makes sense that you're seeing more of that recognition of those tropes.
1: Yeah, and to that end, when they get inside uh, they being Kyle and Hellcat and Val. Hellcat finds this huge stack of mail in response to um, the Dollar Bill documentary, and she knows that if Kyle sees it, he's going to flip out even more. <laughs> so She has to, like, protect them all from his fragility <laughs> by hiding the mail from him.
0: Yeah. When I saw that, I was just like, oh, she shouldn't have to do that. But also, good job doing that. hmm yep. Also... I noticed that the piece of mail that she did acknowledge, which was Val's invitation to the campus dance, was an invitation to a midnight mixer, which they attend, which Kyle can't join them for because he has a meeting with his accountant. Yeah, that guy works late, huh? Yeah, no shit. He made his accountant meet him for a midnight dinner. Like, he made his appointment with his accountant for like 1230 at night and then ditched it. What a dickhole. Not very respectful. No, not a quality employer. No, I wouldn't want to work for Kyle (laughs) Richmond. I mean, it seems like you could probably embezzle a lot if you were into that and he would never fucking notice. Uh Uh-huh, that's true. I mean, if you're into malfeasance, then he would be a pretty quality employer. But the price you pay for that, I guess, is having to show up for 1230 dinner meetings that he doesn't end up showing up for. Although maybe the guy's worked for him long enough that he knows, oh, I don't actually need to go to this. He's not going to show up.
1: Yeah, or, you know, a way to stick it to the man, just call your buddy the ringer. Be like, hey, I'm going to be at this meeting with Kyle, maybe. <laughs> it's a good time for you to go loot the office.
0: Right, because, yeah, we have seen that all of his employees know that he is really Nighthawk. And we've seen that the government knows that he's Nighthawk, too. Bad job at secret IDs, Kyle. Yep. Which brings us to the Lunatic part of the comic book. There's a lot to unpack with this. Do you have any idea what's going on with there now being apparently at least four versions of Lunatic?
1: No. In fact, the way that they set it up where each of the three heroes kicks Lunatic's butt, but then, you know, kind of shows those sequences unfolding linearly. Mm Mm-hmm was confusing to me also, because I was like, wait a minute, he just got beat. Oh, okay. I see what's going on.
0: It's odd because there hadn't been any setup for this in previous lunatic appearances. Like, this is definitely a completely new wrinkle that seemed to come out of nowhere. And even within the context of the fights, like, I was trying to pick up if there was any difference in the pattern between the three lunatics that we see fighting, and they seemed not to. They all had kind of the same general demeanor and thing that was going on. I mean, I guess one of the differences between previous lunatic appearances and these lunatics are that they definitely seem weaker or at least inconsistent in their strength. Like, there was some ninja fight shit going on where like, oh, when he first shows up, this ninja fights the main hero to a standstill, and the hero barely escapes with his life. But then when 15 ninjas show up, then he can defeat them all easily. There was some narrative disconnect with how strong he was supposed to be. Like, he's kind of kicking Val's ass, and he chops down a telephone pole with a stick, and then she throws a sword at his tummy, and he's down for the count.
1: Yeah, inconsistent. You know, it just occurred to me that With the way that that robots work in the Marvel world, uh, it's possible that they're some sort of a construction because I guess there's a little bit of foreshadowing where it's either Hellcat or Val says after a really impressive leap, like, oh, he can't be human.
0: Yeah, that was actually, I think, Nighthawk that noted that, which was kind of odd that he noticed anything.
1: (laughs) So, yeah, who knows? Maybe in addition to being the president of the actual drama club (laughs) professor turk is a a roboticist i mean maybe and a great roommate (laughs) that doesn't make any damn sense (laughs) when is it okay for a teacher to be roommates with a student and also it's not like dollar bill needs to take on a roommate he's rich as fuck he is such a bad judge of character And just consequence and everything. He's just a bad judge of everything. (laughs) He really is. Also, Professor
0: Turk, in addition to being almost certainly and admittedly at the end, although not at the beginning of the comic book for no apparent reason, a supervillain, seems like a really shitty professor.
1: Oh, because he gave Ledge an incomplete for being in the hospital?
0: Not for giving him an incomplete for being in the hospital. I understand you need to be consistent, It can just be a rule. Oh, if you miss this many classes, then I have to give you an incomplete. But he also, knowing that he had already missed that amount of classes a couple issues ago, gave him a huge stack of homework to do as makeup work.
1: Oh, not cool. Yeah, that's true.
0: Not cool at all. If you know he's not going to be able to pass, if you know you're going to have to give him an incomplete, why the fuck are you loading him up with homework? especially if that's the guy who you put in the hospital it's such a dick move
1: it is a dick move wow he looks like an evil james coburn
0: (laughs) a little bit i still think he just looks he reminds me of dr light i think it's just the
1: facial hair but like every time i see him i'm like oh dr light fuck that guy yep i have that same feeling also just instant dislike It's a
0: very effective use of facial hair, both in him and in Dr. Light. It's a really nice graphic shorthand for, oh, fuck this guy.
1: Yeah, that's a bad goatee. Also, how do you think
0: Ledge knew Professor Turk's secret? Like, he didn't know it before. Is it just that he's just like, oh, no one would be this big a dick unless they were also a (laughs) supervillain? Gave me all that fucking homework. He's probably lunatic.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you the same question. Um he just seems to put it together pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, despite apparently having no inkling of that before.
1: Yeah, I don't know. What's up with that? I was pleased to see the collar of his uh, psychedelic dress shirt is he still wearing that?
0: Yeah, no. Uh it'll definitely come up in the sartorially speaking, but everybody attending that midnight mixer is uh sartorially splendid in my opinion. Oh. <laughs> I will say, Dollar Bill has no place criticizing Val's previous outfits. Ugh, Dollar Bill. He's such a schmuck.
1: I'm over his everything.
0: When Val shows up, he says, Dig it, prof. Val finally got some clothes that look good with her hairdo. What the fuck, dude? She looks great in her civilian clothes all the goddamn time. And you're Dollar Bill. You dress like a schmuck.
1: Yeah, and the hair is going with the clothes thing doesn't... I don't get what he's talking about.
0: I don't either. Speaking of not getting what people are talking about, lunatics banter? Wow, that is some dense pop culture references.
1: Yeah, there's one in particular I was going to seek your opinion on because maybe I didn't read it correctly. It's when he first shows up, and the kids are joking around about, like, oh, you should burp when uh, the teacher calls your name for attendance.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty good prank.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and then one of the other kids is like, that's gross. And Lunatic says something like, it's, it pops up, and it's like, it's not gross if you're studying metric. Did I read it wrong?
0: It wouldn't be gross if you were thinking metric instead of violating curfew. I tried looking that up. What I came up with was that there was a textbook that was pretty popular around that time called Thinking Metric, and that kind of seems to be all lunatic needs as a foothold to make any kind of a pop culture reference is that doesn't make sense. doesn't have to make sense if it's a pop culture reference. I made a list of all of the pop culture references he made that I was able to figure out what they were references to, and that was the one that I was iffiest on. But after that, you see him reference Kiss songs twice, a Who song, three Rolling Stones songs, Nixon speeches, a Walter Egan and Stevie Nicks song, a Taste of Honey song, a Dr. Pepper ad, a Jeep ad, a Commodore song, an Elvis Costello and the Attraction song, a CBS motto, two different Meatloaf songs, an Almond Joy ad, the musical Annie, Bugs Bunny, United Airlines, Alka-Seltzer, Mork and Mindy, The Carpenters, The Village People, and a Menon deodorant ad. Dang.
1: Yeah, I think you got
0: them. You got them all. And that's all in the space of like three pages. Yeah, it was kind of exhausting. It kind of was. Also, in the 70s, advertisements used to have some horny-ass fucking slogans. <laughs> yeah. Like CBS, their official slogan was, if you turn us on, we'll turn you on. Whoa. <laughs> what
1: the fuck? Yeah, that I didn't remember that. It was
0: in the 70s. So, I mean, like, it makes sense in terms of like, okay, if you turn on the TV, I think maybe turn you on used to have maybe a less sexual connotation, but. I think the connotation that it had if it wasn't sexual was drug use.
1: Uh, no, I, I mean, I, I think I remember when I was a little kid, hearing adults use it as a term for like to be interested in, not necessarily in a sexual way. Like so-and-so turned me on to this Blue Cheer album. Okay, yeah, I can see that.
0: But I think just if you don't have it To be something specific, like you can be turned on to something, but if you're just turned on, I think that sounds pretty sexual.
1: Yeah, not arguing with that. The other
0: one that seemed particularly lascivious to me was the men in deodorant slogan, which was get off the can, get on the stick.
1: You know, I read that and I chuckled. (laughs) I was like, what the heck are they talking about? By the can, do they mean the toilet? Well, I think what they technically meant was
0: stop using the aerosol can to spray your armpits and instead use a roll-on deodorant stick. But it seems like they're making a reference to, like, the phrase, get off the can. Really, I I only know that as a, like, stop taking a poop. (laughs) So if you're hearing it without the context of it being a deodorant ad, it really sounds like both... I don't know, horny and perverse and just weird. Like, stop shitting and get over here
1: and fuck me. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. I didn't know that that was a deodorant slogan. I figured it was a slogan for something because Lunatic was saying it, but I had the same actual read on it, and I think I said out loud, "Huh."
0: Something I noticed that has come up a fair amount is the cover of the comic not quite matching the interior of it because we have the Hulk and Doctor Strange fighting lunatic in this, and that certainly isn't the case in the interior. That aside, it's a really distinct-looking cover. What did you think of the cover?
1: Yeah, I liked it. The colors really pop, and uh, it it does foreshadow the uh, multiple lunatics.
0: Yeah, the pencils are by the same guy who does the interior, which is uh, Herb Trimpe, who I think does a great job with both. The inker is different. The interior inker is Mike Esposito, who I like a lot. The cover was Joseph Rubenstein, who I wasn't particularly familiar with, although I definitely have seen his work before. But it has a really different energy to it. I don't know. It looks less polished and more like frenetic in a way. It's just got more energy behind it and it's less clean inks. But I don't know, it it captures something about the Hulk really, really well. And I really liked how that was done and kind of wanted to put a spotlight on that.
1: Yeah, I enjoyed it. Also, it reminded me of some of the early Eastman and Laird stuff, especially this one, the way that it's uh, drawn from the perspective of one of the other uh, lunatic characters.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I had the same thought. Both the early TMNT stuff and this cover have a similar rawness to them, both in terms of the layout of it and... The execution. It seems like the sort of thing that might be drawn on like a notebook cover or something by like somebody who is incredibly skilled, but it still has that passion and energy in it. You know what I mean?
1: I do. Yeah. And noticeable too the difference going from that to the interior of the book, which is which is good, too. But um, uh, dull seems an uncharitable word compared to the cover, but there is a noticeable difference in tone.
0: Yeah, there's definitely... It's cleaner, but with, I think, a little bit less energy. At the time, Rubinstein was uh, still pretty young. I think he was about 20 when this came out. He got his first professional inking job when he was 17. And the thing he's probably best known for was the first Wolverine miniseries with uh, Miller
1: and Claremont. I kind of wish we had the... Uh... Bozo category for this book because there were some some pretty good dialogue yeah, man, both bozo and timestamp I really like that uh Kyle's choice of words for the fact that he's getting in trouble with the law, you know damaging the relationship with the uh investors in his company. he says that he's going to have honked off investors. <laughs>
0: I can't imagine anybody investing in Richmond Enterprises at this point.
1: I don't know. I guess the company's so big that they don't associate Kyle Richmond with it, maybe?
0: Yeah, at this point, it's one of those where it's just, like, too big to fail.
1: I I felt like uh, Patsy gave Lunatic a a run for his money with some of the banter, not so much the patter of pop culture references, but calls him a classless uh, goon face. That was pretty good.
0: Not bad. I also liked Nighthawk's supposition that, uh, he's really good at jumping. I always thought he was just wearing a bunch of makeup, but maybe he's an alien who looks like that. It's like, oh, that's some outside-the-box thinking that isn't really supported by anything, but okay. Because everybody knows aliens are the best jumpers. (laughs) Right. Because of all the heavy gravity in space where they come from. I also thought it was kind of funny that they brought up the fact that that Nighthawk being as strong as two strong men at night was the
1: Defender's best-kept secret. Yeah, that's garbage. He'll tell anybody that would listen, and even people who won't.
0: Well, I mean, even though he told a lot of people that, that doesn't mean it's not his best-kept secret. I mean, you're definitely grading on a curve there. He's very bad at keeping all of his other secrets, too. So that might be the one that he's best at keeping. I kind of think that it's the best-kept secret because writers keep forgetting that it's the case. Mm -hmm. But I also did think it was kind of funny the way they phrased it, that his strength multiplies at night. Like, yeah, I mean, technically, but it multiplies by two.
1: Yeah, doubled, I guess, would have been easier.
0: Yeah, I I mean, it implies that perhaps he is more powerful than he is, which is not the case. Well, you ready to get into the minutiae? Yeah, let's. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Thank you, Rick. Corey, what was your favorite sound effect?
1: Oh man, this was chalk block full of sound effects. Gosh, I had a few that I thought were funny, but I think my favorite in terms of it being the most evocative is on page 15, and it's the noise that is like the belly flop noise of Val hitting her version of the lunatic in the belly with the flat of her sword, and it makes the noise whap.
0: I thought that was pretty good. My favorite was actually a different noise of val hitting lunatic in the tummy with the sword uh this time when she threw it the fact that it made the noise chud
1: yeah i had that written down also i always like to see a chud the noise not not the creature
0: no no not in person you wouldn't want to see a chud no. not even if it was bud the chud from chud 2
1: <laughs> not even not even then. nope i haven't seen that i just saw the cover of the video box and was like nope
0: to be fair same
1: Well, add it to the list. Can't be worse than a talking pony. (laughs) Which I will
0: never forgive you for, by the way. That is fair. Other sound effects I like a lot. When Lunatic chops down a telephone pole with a stick, it makes the noise crack, which I thought was pretty cool. Kind of implied that maybe there was some electricity running through there when it got felled by his metal Q-tip. I also liked the VOOM, the V-H-O-O-O-O-O-O-M of uh, Nighthawk swooping down and picking up Agent Ron Rice. I thought that was a pretty cool swooping noise.
1: Yep, it's a good one.
0: But yeah, throughout, there were a bunch of really fun sound effects. You can tell that uh, this is an art team that enjoys doing those, and I enjoy reading them, so it was nice to see.
1: You know, lending to the robot theory is also the noise on page 16 that it makes when lunatic uh kind of vaults off of his metal q tip to kick val and that makes the noise bang oh very metallic
0: yeah could be like his hydraulics kicking in there would make that noise or like a spring or something yeah, I didn't actually have the same robot theory that you did. When the first lunatic showed up, I was wondering if maybe it was all of the professors at the university, if like that was maybe the professor who the guy was planning on burping on, if the, like the professors at the university teamed up to all help kill various coeds or Professor Turk used his powers to somehow infect some other professors at the university. But I don't know if that really bears out, because I think if that was the case, you would maybe see some discrepancies in the type of dialogue that they employed, which was one thing I was looking for and didn't see.
1: Yeah, it could be they all were recently tenured, but had a not very good grasp on (laughs) Can finally get revenge on those students and not lose our jobs.
0: (laughs) Oh, see, I would have thought it would be the other way, that they were angry because they weren't tenured. But you're saying, like... Oh, they've got job protection. They can do whatever the fuck they want. Yep, let's put on some makeup and go beat up the student body. Great plan. Just the bad ones. Well, obviously. The ones who plan on kissing you or burping in your face when you try to take attendance. To be fair, (laughs) that's understandable. I don't think that's a murderable offense, though.
1: Oh, no. No, I'm not a tenured professor lunatic apologist. I've always appreciated that about you.
0: Corey, what was your pie not made out of steel? What words did you like best, much like you would like a pie were it not made out of steel? The
1: one that I had was pretty subtle little inset, but it cracked me up. And it was on page 19, and it's the panel where Patsy's looking around the corner, and she's worried that Nighthawk is is just gonna go ham on beating up lunatic and kill him and she's thinking to herself like maybe i'll even need to save Looney's life nah
0: <laughs> that was pretty good i think my favorite though was when nighthawk swoops down to pick up the justice department agent and says look lively chunkheads!
1: nighthawk's here to unwelcome you yeah i thought that was that was pretty good i i don't recall having heard Unwelcome used as a verb before. I I enjoyed that.
0: Yeah, I did too. And also, I don't think I was familiar with the insult chunkhead, but
1: I kind of like it. Yeah, no, that was good. Kyle was on a roll. In fact, I had written that one down. I said, on page three, Kyle calls the shady feds chunkheads. (laughs) Pretty good.
0: We touched on this briefly before, but sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion did you feel were
1: most worthy of note? Oh man, everybody at the Midnight Mixer was was done up nicely, but I, I think the heroes of that are Val and Patsy with their Disco Lady. Her, disco Lady is not really the right way to say it, but just their like, very 70s going out clothing.
0: Yeah, it
1: is odd because we do see
0: that Disco is referenced for, I think, the first time in this comic book, both in Lunatics, Word Salad, Verbal Diarrhea, and in Kyle, as they pull up, says that he can hear the disco music from outside. But the way they're dressed is like Val is very earth tones. It's a outfit that I like a lot. I agree with Dollar Bill on this. But yeah, she's wearing an orange dress with a brown vest over it. And it's belted at the waist with a brown belt. And it just looks really cool. And we see Patsy takes credit for that and says like, yeah, I put that outfit together myself. And she put together an awesome outfit for herself, too.
1: Yeah, also earth tones. No, hers is blue. In my copy, she's got kind of like a green jacket and brown pants and a brown purse. Okay, yeah, she does have the
0: brown pants and brown purse. In mine, it's more of a turquoise, thigh-high boots, and uh, really, really cool-looking jacket. The lapels on that jacket are fucking rad. Yeah, I've never seen lapels like that. Nah, they are like Clea pointy but other than that it's like almost like a short trench coat top it's it's a really nice look i i yeah i really appreciated their outfits also you mentioned ledges outfit he's got a green sweater and has a yeah like some kind of a paisley or somehow psychedelic purple shirt collar coming up from under it. And uh it's nice. It's consistent with his previous looks and I liked that and his look in general. The fact that he has such a long head. I feel like they're trying to set up kind of a Burton Ernie situation between him and Dollar Bill. And I kind of appreciate that.
1: Yeah, I feel like that's the same shirt that when he was his character was introduced, we had uh talked about it. I think maybe, yeah. Um Professor Turk, which sounds like turkey, because he's a turkey. Nice. He's wearing wearing a a blue knit turtleneck sweater and a black jacket.
0: Yeah, his jacket. I wasn't sure if it was the coloration of my issue. At first, I thought it was supposed to be like really sparkly because it's got all of these little white dots on it. But I think that might just be the fading printing of my issue. Or maybe it's supposed to be some kind of like a Tweety type thing.
1: Or he just needs to run one of those things over it that takes the little, what are they called? Little, like, pieces of lint. Lint balls? Yeah. Yeah. A a sweater depiller. pillar Mm -hmm. Gotta be careful with those. Why not? (laughs) Uh, Listeners will have to reference episode something or other of our show to figure that one out. Yeah, that's a fun Easter egg for them. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you've only got 200 things to listen to to find it.
0: Yeah, sort through them and you too can be mildly amused by a kind of sad story. <laughs> well, speaking of Professor Turk Cory, it's time for Behold or Begone? Having a supervillain as your roommate. Behold or Begone. I think there would be some surprising benefits to this situation. I do want to make clear we are not talking about having a supervillain for a roommate versus not having a roommate at all. This would be having a supervillain for a roommate as opposed to a regular roommate.
1: Where do you stand on this? What are your thoughts? Oh, I feel like I need more information. First of all, what kind of villainy or do, like, do we get to know? Do we get to choose what kind of supervillain they are? And secondly... Are they otherwise a responsible roommate? Did they clean up after themselves and pay the bills on time and whatnot? Well, I think you
0: have to take it on a case-by-case situation. I don't know. You you have to figure out whether they would be, as an aggregate, more or less likely than any other person to tidy up after themselves. I'm not talking about a specific supervillain. I'm just saying a supervillain in general. But (laughs) let's make the caveat that your life is not in any danger from them. So that's off the table. That's not something you need to worry about. I think the upsides would be... I mean, the biggest one for me is maybe you get to live in a volcano if this is the situation. (laughs) Like hollowed out volcano base on an island. That'd be pretty good. I think they're gonna be out a lot. So that's nice. Like you'll have the place to yourself a fair amount of the time, I would guess. With them either being off fighting superheroes or in prison or occasionally dead. So there's an upside to that, certainly. If they have an extended prison sentence, you maybe get to sublet their part of the lease and, uh, depending on your HOA agreement, <laughs> and, you know, recoup some of your your money that way, either rent or mortgage. I'd also imagine that a supervillain would be pretty good at keeping a homeowners association off of your back. So that's an upside, too. My guess is if they're dying a lot of the time, or are pretending to be dead or presumed dead a lot of the time, you maybe get some of their stuff each time. So that's nice. Some cool supervillain stuff lying around. They all seem to have pretty giant TVs. So, you know, you get to make use of that. The downside would be, I mean, they are supervillains. There's a pretty good chance that they're evil. They're maybe going to have their hench people over a fair amount. So
1: I don't know how you feel about that. I don't know. What are your thoughts? So, my main concern, I mean, just other than that they're probably evil, is there's, like, a really high drama quotient. Ooh, that is a good point. With supervillains, and I, I don't want that in my house. Yeah. That's my sanctum sanctimonious. I don't, <laughs> I don't need any any of that garbage in there.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Oof. Gosh, it's a really tough one for me, because I would like to live in a hollowed-out
1: volcano. Yeah, but that's not every supervillain. You could get just, like, a regular one who, like, falls asleep on the couch and has bad gas.
0: I mean, yeah, that's a
1: possibility,
0: but I think, like, as opposed to the rest of the population, you stand a much higher chance of living someplace weird and cool
1: with a supervillain than you do with
0: most people.
1: So I guess it's more accurate to say you would be the supervillain's roommate, not the supervillain would be your roommate in terms of the person who found the place and got the lease set up and all of that.
0: Yeah, I I think that would be the case, yes. Although your name is on the lease too, and you do get to veto
1: any furniture choices for common areas. Okay, that's definitely an argument in favor, because who doesn't want to live somewhere really cool? But I'm gonna I'm gonna have to say be gone for me.
0: I think that's fair. And yeah, your argument of them being very dramatic is pretty compelling.
1: And they're always going to want you to listen to whatever shenanigans they've been up to or what their villainous accomplishments have been. And, you know, it's like, you don't want to have to humor that all the time, right?
0: Yeah, I bet they're not going to be great about the chore wheel either. And there's a pretty good chance you'll get called a fool more than I like. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to give this one a be gone as well. All right. Wow. A rare non-split decision. <laughs> Two be Every issue of a Defenders comic book has at least one character who has to act in a way contrary to their previously established characterization or motivation in a way that furthers the plot. To paraphrase the fat boys from Crush Groove, they just gotta be a sucker. In this issue,
1: who is your sucker? Yeah, this one for me was less of a challenge than it usually is. And I went with the Hulk solely because he was just so agreeable after getting zapped into the sanctum sanctimonious and asked to go on a mission he just basically said yeah okay no problem just don't talk so much i actually
0: had the hulk also or more specifically in my case bruce banner like if you count the hulk and bruce banner as separate entities they both acted out of character bruce banner in being like well why don't you just turn me into the hulk and ask him when we're more used to him dreading and never wanting to be changed into the hulk also, it seemed really weird how he was just like, oh, man, I love hanging out with the Defenders. They're so great. I love that they accept the Hulk version of me as well as the regular Bruce Banner version of me. And it's like, dude, you've hung out with him like four times as Bruce Banner. You're always the Hulk with them. And also, you hate being the Hulk. It's weird that you're fine with being turned into it. And you're right. Then once he turns into the Hulk, too, he is surprisingly pliant and just like, OK, st- Steve, as long as you shut up during the trip, I'll go along with you. It made me wonder if the Hulk was dabbling in sarcasm as well, given that he knows that Steve never talks during trips.
1: Ah, Bruce ruse and, and the Hulk, both experimenting with... Uh, I had a, a friend's dad refer to sarcasm as um, the recourse of a weak mind. <laughs> <laughs> Which was a pretty good way to shut up a sarcastic kid. <laughs> Was that Tony Irons? It was, yeah. That stuck with me. I was like, ooh, that hurts, and I'm going to remember that one. <laughs> Maybe use it on a kid of my own someday.
0: Aw. Well, there's plenty of kids out there you can still sass. <laughs> Good to
1: know. What was your favorite panel? Gosh. I think my favorite panel was actually the same one that had my favorite metaphor or favorite bit of dialogue. And it's that little, it's just a simple little panel, but I feel like it really captured um, Hellcat's character on page 19, where she's peering around the corner, wondering if she's going to have to jump in and help a lunatic out. That and um, the preceding panels on the top of that page. And this street lamp, I feel like shows up a fair amount in in this (laughs) issue but uh it, it really does set the tone for like this this is stuff that's happening late at night yeah i
0: also really like the look of patsy's uniform at night in like almost like a noir type setting her costume was created for a character who was going to be operating in an almost borderline horror context when it was not patsy wearing that outfit and i think that the outfit looks really well in that regard My favorite panel was, it was a little moment, and I think there was a street lamp involved in that one as well. It's on page 26, and it is Nighthawk standing under the street lamp, having just pulled over and changed into his outfit at a payphone, but not a phone booth even. It looks like he has just disrobed. You see his clothes draped over a piece of the payphone, and then his, like, shoes are just leaning up against the car. So he got out of the car to change into his Nighthawk outfit, just in public, by a payphone, but not in a phone booth. And it just really cracked me up, the idea of him doing that, and just really, once again, driving home how bad at secret identities he is. It's like, phone,
1: phone, uh, phone, booth, no, phone, something with a phone. (laughs) Yeah, phone kiosk. (laughs) Ah, close enough. If I stand in front of
0: this, I can get naked, right? Oh, Kyle. Oh, Kyle, indeed. Speaking of, oh, Kyle, worst
1: offender and best defender, who was your worst offender? It will come as a big surprise to you, but I went with the guy who has the policy of calling names and Scaring the people who are maybe going to lock him up when they come to get his side of the story. The man who needs his fragile emotions managed by his maybe roommates or friends who were there. I have to hide mail from him. (laughs) And uh, just in general doing a bad job at running a huge business that a lot of people depend on. Kyle was the worst offender.
0: He absolutely was, and I want to again emphasize the idea that he scheduled a 12.30 a.m. business lunch with his accountant and then ditched it. Just shitty job all around. It was nice to be able to give him best defender last issue, but I can see that that is not going to be sustainable.
1: Yep, very inconsiderate. Yeah. Conversely, who did you have as your best defender? Yeah, this one was kind of a... Toss-up, I felt like both Val and Patsy were pretty strong. Agreed. I guess mostly because I liked the way that the fight scene was drawn better, and uh, I enjoyed the banter, I went with Hellcat. I
0: also went with Hellcat. I had that uh, clothes design, sass, fighting, and mail distribution were the reasons that she was the greatest in this issue. Yeah, I thought both her and Val did a pretty good job in general, but I like that she went the extra mile and helped her friend pick out a cool outfit, and I thought she did indeed pick out a cool outfit for her friend. She also... Did a great job fighting and was sassy and fun during the fight. And it got some good zingers in. And like I said, I think that she should absolutely not have to protect Kyle from his mail, but that she did a good job doing so. And it probably made things easier for all the rest of the defenders. So, yeah, I also had Patsy as the best defender. Nice. Corey, we both know that
1: the Hulk rules. In this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? In this issue, the Hulk's rules were pretty straightforward, and they were that you should definitely be willing to help your friends, but also set good boundaries when doing so. The example Mm. being Hulk was willing to go with Steve on their fact-finding mission as long as he shut up. (laughs) I think that is fair. I had the Hulk's
0: rule being one that he learned after hearing about his friend's various fights with iterations of Lunatic. And that rule is... A string of pop culture references devoid of context constitutes neither a personality nor a conversation. I think like many of us, the Hulk has had to deal with people who seem to think that is the case, and uh, it's annoying and frustrating all around. Here, hear. I'm reminded of Ethan Hawke's character from Reality Bites, and also of all of the people who <laughs> were participating in the theater that was around the corner from the bar that I used to work at. (laughs) I think I mentioned it before. People would come up to the bar and just do movie quotes at me, like with no context that didn't really apply to the situation. And I started replying eventually just by saying, yeah, I ain't afraid of no ghost. Uh, So that's the Hulk's rule. Just, uh, you know, it's fine to reference pop culture things. I think if you listen to the show, you know that I do that all the time. But, uh, you know... Use them in context and do them in a way that makes sense. Don't just string together a bunch of pop culture references that the other person doesn't know what you're talking about.
1: Toilet, deodorant.
0: I ain't afraid of no ghost. (laughs) Like that? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, don't do that. Don't be a lunatic with a K. Nobody likes it. And also, just never go up to a stranger and say, get off the can, get on the stick. I ain't afraid of no ghost. (laughs) That's really the only proper reply. Well played. Well, Corey, I think it's time for us to write some wongs. So, in the year of our Lord, 1979, and the month of our Lord,
1: April, what wongs needed writing? So as we know, Wong is a man of many talents and diverse interests and also a pretty experienced traveler. Last time he was in Colorado for the Fresh Mountain Air, he decided to take a dance class when he was in Denver and took a lesson from a guy named Henry with an eye who was a former competitive Charleston dancer and struck up a friendship with him. He was an interesting guy, also drove a taxi and was a diving clown also what yep dress up in a clown suit and dive into a little pool it turned out that uh, later henry wound up moving to new york for a job as a commercial artist and wong had been hanging out it was a a lazy day reading the april issue of scientific american magazine and uh, came across this article called the physics of karate that's how that's, that's how he said it to himself that's not how i say that word the way of the open hand? Karate. Um, anyway, he was, <laughs> he was impressed with this article. He thought it was pretty interesting. And it reminded him of his buddy Henry on account of his clown diving career. So he decided to uh, go out and have a drink with him and talk about that. Basically, like the, the physics of, you know, how the human body can do what it does. And it was really fortunate that they had this conversation because Henry, whose last name is Lamoth was able to put that into practice just a a few days later on April 7th when he decided to do a stunt. And the stunt that he did is he went to the Flatiron Building in New York and uh, put up a 28-foot ladder and uh, put about 12 inches of water, a little bit more, into a kiddie pool at the bottom and dove off the top of that ladder, uh, setting a Guinness World Record. For dumbest man in the world? Yeah, he belly flopped. What the fuck? 28 feet in the air into about 12 uh, inches of water in this pool. Uh, The folks at GM, General Motors, got wind of this and said, now there's a guy (laughs) that we would like to pay to help us make our products safer. And uh, he wound up doing some testing for GM. And uh, next time he did his uh, risky dive like that, they attached some sensors to his body and were shocked to learn that his chest was able to absorb seven G's of impact when it hit the water, so seven times his own body weight of force when previously GM thought that the record was was 48 G's of force is what a human body could withstand. And that's all thanks to Wong's reading that article, The Physics of Karate in Scientific (laughs) American's 1979 April issue.
0: Wow, so thanks to Wong, GM realized that they didn't need to make their cars as safe as they had been making them.
1: Right. So it's not really a thanks Wong, just more of a this is something that happened in Wong's life in April of
0: 1979. Wow. Well, that was one thing that Wong was up to. Another thing that Wong was up to had had become a bit of a tradition for him. I don't know if you remember, but back in Issue 7 of the Defenders, the Defenders ended up clashing with a guy named Cyrus Black, who tried to attack the Defenders through his dreams after burning some strong Jamaican
1: incense. Oh, that Cyrus Black.
0: Yeah, well, if you'll recall, at the end of that issue, he decided that maybe he was going to give up the supervillain business. Maybe not, but maybe. Turned out he did, and what he got into was the strong Jamaican incense distribution game. And over the years, Wong became one of his uh, best clients and they struck up a bit of a friendship. So every April 20th, they would get together and partake of some (laughs) strong Jamaican incense together and talk about various matters, mystical and metaphysical. This year, they decided to do that and uh, went and watched a movie together, which can be a fun thing to do if you've had some strong Jamaican incense. they went and watched the newly released Muppet movie. And, man, they loved it. But watching that movie gave them quite an appetite for frog's legs. (laughs) So they decided to go down to Louisiana and uh, see if they could uh, scare up some regional cuisine there. Now, on the flight, perhaps due to the strong Jamaican incense... Cyrus Black ended up falling asleep and reverted to his old mystical tendencies. He started having a bad dream. Now, he has a very close relative who uh, was an amateur anamorph. Was named Sirius Black, who would turn into a big black dog sometimes. And uh, he started thinking, oh, man, what if I turned into an animal sometimes? And due to harnessing inadvertently the power of his dreams and his innate mystical abilities, he turned into a giant rabbit. He was very, very upset by this condition, was just frightened and frustrated. And um, they had to make an emergency landing in Georgia. And he hopped off the plane before anybody could stop him. They didn't realize what had happened. Wong was a little bit not clear-headed on this matter himself. And so they didn't realize that the the rabbit that Cyrus Black had turned into had gone missing. But later that day, scared and confused, that sorcerously large rabbit ended up leaping out of a pond and attacking a vacationing Jimmy Carter. And that is why on April 20th, 1979, President Jimmy Carter was attacked by a swamp rabbit while fishing on a pond in Georgia. Wong was able to clear matters up, got Cyrus under control, and eventually he he was able to apologize to Carter and calm the situation down. Carter ended up getting some bad press out of this incident, and uh, I ended up being frightened when I learned about it later because the idea of swimming swamp rabbits is horrifying, and those are a thing that really exist. Anyway, that was the Wong doings that Wong was doing on 420- Of 1979.
1: (laughs) Wow. I was wondering how you were going to get the rabbit into the (laughs) swamp. Yeah, I was too. (laughs) Didn't Uh, really make sense. But, you know,
0: these things happen on April 20th from time to time. Oh, sure. It's a mysterious day. Thank you so much for joining us, Corey. And thank you for listening, dear listener. This has been a real treat. If you'd like to get into touch with us, there's a few different ways that you can do that. One of them is via our P.O. Box at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. As this is the future, we can also be reached electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also up in many other aspects of the internet. Uh, There's the Facebook, the Twitter, the Tumblr, uh, LinkedIn, seacaptainsonly.com. What's another website, Corey? Grinder. Yeah, I think we're on there too. If you'd like to leave us a review on whatever uh, podcast listening application you're using to listen to this podcast, I think that would be a really nice thing for you to do. We always appreciate it. We always appreciate getting uh, feedback and a positive review helps people find the show and listen to it if, you know, that's a thing you think they should do. So why not do that? Log on to your podcast machine device application and hit the leave a review button that's probably there and type in or dictate tighten up the defense it's not just a bunch of nonsense rambling it's a show and it makes sense and i like it five stars yeah couldn't have said it better myself thanks If you'd like to support the show monetarily, you can do so by visiting us at patreon.com slash TT Wasteland. If you do donate, then you get access to a bunch of extra bonus material, including the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That's a podcast that I co-host with my brilliant wife, Lisa, where we talk about Howard the Duck comics from the 70s. You also get access to a bunch of other bonus material I put up there. There are some extra episodes that Corey and I have recorded, and I also do at least weekly video reviews of comic books, either new or classic. But mostly, it's a way for you to let us know that you like what we're doing and would like us to keep doing it. Also, it just occurs to me, now that we've got a P.O. box, you know, if you don't want to do a monthly donation, you could just mail us money that'd be nice i mean i know you're not supposed to mail cash in the mail i think i read that somewhere but you know breaking rules is fun just mm-hmm. you know mail us some cash yeah or like gift cards oh totally yeah cash gift cards jewels mm-hmm. um
1: airline tickets wait no you can't really use those can you
0: no probably not i don't think those are transferable about like you know stocks bonds oh yeah um Gold Krugerans. Anyway, thanks for supporting us however you support us, even if it's just by listening to the show and, you know, not turning it off and throwing your computer out the window. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Because littering's bad. Anyway, this is Tighten Up the Defense reminding you to get off the can and, nope, we're not going to do that one. Ha! Okay, bye. Bye. If you would like to support the show monetarily, a nice way to do that is to visit us at patreon.com slash what the fuck dot (laughs) com. All right. Let's uh... Let's take the whole show from the top. All right. Just scrap it. Start over. All right. My
1: good for many things brother. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Please don't.